we became, you know, the coolest hound around the hottest dogs in town. We did have uh, Dr. Dog's Herbal Life High Energy Hound Dog, and that was the one where we sprinkled a few alfalfa sprouts on top of the hound. Hello, I'm Andrew May, and this is the NAB Business Fit Podcast, where we chat with experts and leaders in a range of fields, delving into their world to find out what fuels them and to learn valuable lessons that can be applied to running a small business, which is especially very important right now. We have conversations about how they have adjusted to the new world of work and share stories about adapting and navigating through challenging times. Today's guest on the NAB Business Fit podcast comes from humble beginnings in Ballarat. After being inspired at a young age by his parents' small business journey, starting his own small business was only a matter of time. He launched Dr. Dog, a hot dog startup. I didn't know those words existed with fellow Melbourne uni students when it had one of the best, if not the best tagline I've ever heard, the coolest hound around, the hottest dog in town. Following Dr. Dog, Bill Lang co-founded two internet businesses, Free Online in Australia and Sharinga Networks Incorporated, the San Francisco-based tech company. This culminated in a $120 million global alliance with AT&T and British Telecom. He is an educator, coach and advisor with an extensive career profile, including working as a management consultant in KPMG, AXA, Macquarie Bank and McKinsey. After graduating from Harvard, Bill moved to Melbourne, married the girl of his dreams and he has raised three energetic children in Melbourne. As Director of Small Business Australia, he works tirelessly, and I underscore tirelessly, as an advocate for better conditions for small business owners, supporting them to survive and thrive. To the creator of the best tagline in the hot dog startup business, Phil Lang, welcome. G'day, Andrew. Good to see you. Now, let's start on that. We can't gloss over that because you're just Director of Small Business Australia, but when you started that hot dog stall, let's go back. I want to find out a little bit more about that story. Yeah, well, in fact, uh, three of us had been up to what these days are called schoolies. We finished our first year at Melbourne Uni, 1981. Victorians were allowed into Queensland in those days, and we had great uh, fun up on the Gold Coast, and the pubs used to close at 6pm in those days, and we saw people selling uh, hot dogs at 6pm out the front of pubs, and we thought, oh, that looks like a pretty good way to make a few dollars. We don't have anything like that down in Melbourne. So we we came back down, and one of the three of us had uh, just inherited a HQ Holden, his grandfather had died and left it to him in the will. So we had some wheels. We got a pop-up van that we towed behind the old HQ and then ultimately moved on to what these days they call it the food truck industry, Andrew. But we had three vans driving around the streets of Melbourne. It became pretty much a mobile monopoly. We would go to different places just before closing time and then leave about half an hour later and drive on to the next one. So made for a great story in my uh, application to go to Harvard Business School. Oh, I bet it does. But an even better story. Tell us about your first night because I mentioned in the introduction humble beginnings from Ballarat. But let's say humble beginnings in small business. As the face and the driver behind Small Business Australia, you do an amazing job, Bill. And I, w- I want to commend you on the work you do for small business owners. You're so passionate. I, I always see you on TV. I hear you on the radio. You've got a big digital footprint. So people who think, oh, this guy's always had it together. You know, he's always known how to run small businesses. Rewind a little bit. Tell me about the first night of Dr. Dog. Yeah, well, in fact, it was a Bob Dylan concert and he was playing at the Kuyong Tennis Club where the Australian Open used to be. And we got all excited, the three of us that started that business. We had uh, 300 puppies, as we called them, 300 hot dogs, 300 bread rolls, lots of sauce. We even organised some flashing lights to go on the side of the pop-up trailer we got ourselves down to Glen Ferry Road in Hawthorne, which is where the Kuyong Tennis Club is. Got all set up, had the lights flashing, we're ready to go. 
people were starting to arrive to go to the Bob Dylan concert. And I think by the time we got to 9 p.m., it was dark. The batteries had gone flat. The lights had stopped flashing. And of the 300 hot dogs or puppies that we had on board, there were 295 left. So uh, the three of us had all had one each, do a bit of market research to sample it. And then a couple of our mates had popped in to sort of say g'day. They were going to the, going to the concert and did the right thing and bought one each. So we sold five, 295 left over. Had to get a jump start to get the car going again, got the jump start, and then found that we were able to actually donate all of that stock to a homeless shelter in Melbourne. But one of the things that, you know, I share with a lot of people that are starting out in business is around just how quickly you learn when you're spending your own money. And what we were able to do the next night is come back again with 300, but we had spoken with the police officers that were sort of organising and directing traffic. This time they allowed us to park on the side of the street where the customers were walking past. And I'm very pleased to say that we went from total failure on night one to a sellout by about uh, 8.30 p.m. on night two. But there's nothing like uh, having skin in the game, your own money in the game, Andrew, and, and learning quickly. Absolutely. I was going to make a quip. I think you inspired Bob Dylan to write two songs and it's not blowing in the wind. I was going to say it must have inspired him on night one to write Joker Man or one of other songs Dylan's known for, The Ballad of a Thin Man, because he wasn't selling any hot dogs. But I won't use that quip because you adapted and you jumped over the opposite side of the road, sold a heap. Did you diversify? Was it just a dog and a bun and sauce or did you have other options? Yeah, now look, we, uh, as we built the fleet, we'd have our staff dress up, particularly the female members of the team dressed up as nurses, and we had all of our condiments in plasma sacks. And uh, then the brand got evolved. We became, you know, the coolest hound around the hottest dogs in town. We had a special chili con carne mix that we had because there's always, there's always someone you know, at three o'clock in the morning wants to know how hot your chili is, and they'd roll up to the van and be out the front of Chase's nightclub here in Melbourne, and they uh, you know, how hot's your chili? So the chili con carne would go in with some raw chilies and we'd watch them. They'd often then by that stage be sitting in the gutter, you know, munching down the uh, chili con carne dog, perspiration pouring from their faces. They'd get back up, they'd wander back over to the van and, you know, how wasn't it? And they'd, they'd go, that was uh, WTF fantastic. Give us another one, doctor. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Any vegetarian options back then? Yeah, you, that pioneering? I think these days they call them flexitarians, but we did have Dr. Dog's Herbal Life High Energy Hound Dog, and that was the one where we sprinkled a few alfalfa sprouts on top of the hound. It's so much more we could talk about, but let's let's rewind a little bit. So you don't just do that when you're at university and land on your feet, adapt, move really quickly. There's got to be some foundation or some grounding there. So I am assuming small business growing up, a friend, family member, where, where, where did small business first come into your life? Yeah, look, I think as, as I've learned more about the history of the Langs in Australia, my great-great-grandfather came out as a, as a 29-year-old shepherd from Prussia with his wife for the gold rush in Ballarat. So the Eureka Rebellion had already happened, but in 1865, they arrived. I don't think ever struck gold, but clearly had a mindset and an appetite for risk to travel to the other side of the earth to this place to try and find their fortune. And you know, since that time, I've grown up around 15 uncles and aunts, all involved in small business. My grandfather's in small business. You know, my mum, when she was alive, had four small businesses over her career. You know, my dad left school, uh, I think it was year nine, but ended up in, in small business, initially cleaning cars and then selling cars and then doing, you know, car wrecking, etc. So I've always been surrounded by it. And I think there's definitely something in the DNA from those earliest days when Christoph came out from Prussia. 
I think you're living on brand. For those watching on the video cast, you can see over your right shoulder, Small Business Australia, the voice of people in small business. So good background to be giving people support. Growing up, uh, I understand Banjo Patterson had a big impact on you and your learning. Would you like to share, first of all, your favourite? Share me a line from Banjo Patterson. Well, I think, uh, you know, it was Mulga Bill from Eagle Hawk that caught the cycling craze. He gave away the good old horse that served him many days. I had a significant issue as, as, a, as a child in terms of stuttering and would be stuttering all of the time and was fortunate to uh, initially be taught by the Mercy Nuns in St James Primary School and then to end up at a Christian Brothers School uh, in Ballarat St Patrick's College. And there was a lovely speech pathologist called Dr. Ryan. And with Dr. Ryan, she taught me to recite Banjo Patterson and to ultimately be able to attend and compete in uh, a Steadfords that we used to have. But look, I, you know, I can't say enough about all those educators, uh, the Christian brothers, the lay teachers, Dr. Ryan, every educator I've had throughout my, my academic career. Uh, just the, the wonderful thing that they do and the role that they play. But uh, she was absolutely instrumental. And, and in the Lang family, I think it's fair to say up until that point in time, most of my cousins, you know, finished school at about sort of year 10 and then went off and got involved in a trade. And with the help of the Christian brothers, they kept me at school. And at the age of 17, I, I found myself down at the University of Melbourne and then being in the hands of the Jesuits at Newman College. So, but uh, Banjo Patterson, I've, I've got a big book here. And, you know, the man from Ironbark is also another good one, a couple of my favourites. But One of the things interesting around that, Bill, is for a lot of kids, that would be a huge challenge and massive opportunity you turned it into. What was the mindset back then? Or have you even thought about this? That rather than getting stuck on it, you obviously had great support. But you know, what, what did that teach you? I remember Dr. Ryan in particular really breaking things down and, you know, helping me sound words out. And I think there must have been something going on around the sort of, again, you know, sometimes cognitive processing can happen, you know, very fast. And, you know, the link with the physiology with respect to sort of, you know, the mirror neurons connecting with the motor neurons, it must have been a timing difference. But, and I know in my own career since then, when it's come time to learn something new, the importance of breaking things down, you know, step by step, layering them, getting on top of what the foundation skill is, first of all, then layering on the next skill, layering on the next skills. So I didn't realise it at the time, but as I sort of reflect on it, that's exactly the the learning methodology and strategy that Dr. Ryan was using. Yeah, well, well, that inspired you to go on and study, not just in high school, but you went on to study law after that? Yeah, I did. A, I started with a Bachelor of Commerce at Melbourne Uni and elements of it sort of seemed to go pretty well. And I remember the rector of Newman College sort of saying towards the end of that first year, and I'd been fortunate to have some of my fees paid for with a scholarship. And he said, well, look, you know, you've you've performed quite well in this subject, commercial law. Have you thought about studying law? And I said, look, I, I hadn't really, but I'm not too sure we're really going to be able to afford it. And he goes, well, given the academic results, you, you're going to qualify for a full scholarship now. And, you know, even though it's another couple of years to your education, in the, in the great scheme of things, you'll find that you might have some talent there and that might be a path you want to pursue. And it just reminds me of my old dad. I saw him yesterday. I went and visited Ballarat because we've just been uh, allowed to go beyond the Melbourne area, who's 78. And uh, I still remember when I was accepted to go and do my MBA at Harvard, and, and I, I said to him, look, I'm going to be moving to America, to Boston, for a couple of years. And he goes, what are you doing still going like, you know, what, what else is there to learn, is what he said to me. And uh, we were sort of joking about it yesterday up in Ballarat, because there's always things to learn. And 
There's probably never been a more important time for anybody who's involved in small business to have to learn potentially a whole range of things about themselves and about how to change their business more quickly than they've ever had to in the past. Absolutely. Before we do get into small business, I just want to talk about four big businesses I mentioned before. So AXA, Macquarie Bank, KPMG and McKinsey. They're not small businesses, big global consulting businesses. Two questions. Why did you go down that path? You, know, you come from a family of Langs, from the, the, the Prussian gold diggers. So why did you go down that path? And secondly, what did that teach you that you have applied to small business? Look, I think in terms of going down the path, and I was talking to my eldest child, who's 27 recently, around it wasn't probably until I was 37 or 38, so 20 years or so ago, when I actually finally found what would be my future and that I would throw everything into. So in many respects, the various uh, jobs that I had in different firms over those years were opportunities that came up and I was given the opportunity to then work there and try that out. And whether it was at KPMG initially as, a, as an auditor or then working in the tax consulting area or management consulting, you got to have to learn some technical skills pretty quickly and, and certainly project work. You know, in those firms and in places like McKinsey, you get to work in different or in different industries. I was blessed. I got to work around the world in different countries and different cultures. And you get to see, uh, you know, high-performing professionals, you know, in their fields, in the firms, and then also executives in various organisations. So it was like drinking from a fire hydrant in terms of the real world and learning some new technical skills and having a look and going, well, would I like to potentially, do I see myself being like that person there, that partner in that firm? I know you've had experience working in those firms as well, Andrew, and you see that the high performers, you say, well, you know, they're clearly very good at what they do and love what they do. Is Can I see myself doing that? So my career path in many respects for those first, you know, since I was 17 coming down to Melbourne Uni till I was 37 was trying things, working out whether that's something I could, you know, see myself you know, doing longer term, ruling some of them out, but then ultimately sort of coming back to the freedom that having your own business can provide you with in terms of being able to pursue, you know, what your key goals are. So at 15 years of age, year 10 for most places, is when we have career advisors saying, so Bill, young Bill, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if you work that out at 37, my maths is that's a good decade and a bit after that. It's interesting, isn't it, for a lot of people in small business, and the statistics show that, that it's not the person at 18 years of age who has a brainwave and then five years later they've listed on the stock exchange, they've got a unicorn and they're riding around on hovercrafts and you know big jets and everything. It's so different to the way a lot of people enter small business. What happened at 37, 38? So you've down that consulting path. It's I've been in that that life as well, as you mentioned, it can become addictive, you know, addictive as far as the deals and the, the, the money and the structure and everything else. So to walk away from that at 37, 38, it's a pretty big thing. Was there anything that happened to really spark you to go back to your roots? Yeah, well, look, I think the time at Harvard in Boston was quite critical. And, and I met Stephen Covey, who had been a Harvard MBA and was a professor in organizational development and very much, you know, developed his seven habits of highly effective people framework. And it was very visual, very similar to the way we used to do things at McKinsey and Company. So that that was pivotal. So that was at the sort of 27. And then sort of from 27, that framework and then thinking about my life longer term, you know, helped me get the courage up then to propose to the girl of my dreams who I hadn't spoken with for 12 months, who was living on the other side of the world. 
and we got married. She, she said yes. Uh, I still say it's the greatest sale I ever made, was persuading her to marry me, Fiona. And I said, look, let's, you know, you come back from London, I'll come back from Boston, and we'll live in Melbourne. So over the, over the following years, and I got to work in AXA. I helped set up Bain & Company in South Africa with Tim Ford, a classmate from Harvard who lives up in Sydney. We did a bunch of consulting for a bunch of major corporates. The internet came along. Another uh, former colleague from McKinsey, Sid Lowe, an absolute genius. We looked at a range of different internet type businesses and set it on something called Free Online. And then with some neat technology that we were able to get patented and then finally moved to Silicon Valley. So Fiona and I went off to San Francisco with three young children. Uh, she was very much the single mother for that period of time. I spent a couple of years, we were literally you know, flying around the world, raising capital, trying to get deals done with Bill Gates, Steve Case at AOL. I was hardly ever home, incredibly uh, stressful and exhilarating. And then the stock market crashed and we agreed with our corporate partners in terms of what should happen with the technology. And we sort of looked at each other and said, well, okay, well, you know, let's go home. So that was, and then, you know, I was fortunate. We were financially secure and I could really sit down and say, well, okay, what going forward now, what, what do I really want to be doing? It's like, well, I want to live in Melbourne and raise the family here. I want to work in a global industry that's always looking at, you know, new things. So education, technology. And then we, you know, we started a bunch of businesses back then and created our scores on the board, adult learning system, and ended up with people around the world using it, you know, in 50 different countries. So I got to start traveling again, but more on my own terms, and then evolved, uh, you know, a couple of other businesses, all involved ultimately with helping adults develop the mindsets and learn the skills to be financially secure through their work. And whether that be a senior executive uh, in a large company, a small business owner, uh, or someone looking to start their own business and an entrepreneur, all of the businesses that we still operate today are all fundamentally involved in, in that whole premise around helping adults learn to learn. So, you know, learning to learn is the skill of skills. You get that down pat and never need to be concerned about financial security going forward and understanding how to contribute to an enterprise. And the best way of thinking about that is with a, a small business. Mm. That's what happened at 37. So I finally got the time and the space and had the money to proactively make a choice. I love having these discussions, Bill, because what I knew about you was from Small Business Australia and, and you're always doing stuff for other people. So it's really nice to sort of dig beneath the layers and hot dog startup to food trucks to global consulting firms, a few of them, to Silicon Valley internet startup. It's a pretty wild ride. There's a theory. I, I, I want to know your thoughts on this. Malcolm Gladwell made it popular, but it's actually from Ericsson, who did a study on the Berlin Orchestra and found with the violinists that they needed 10,000 hours. And then Gladwell wrote that, wrote about that in Tipping Point, and everyone attributes it attributes it to Gladwell. And the theory, though, is you need to do 10,000 hours in something to get mastery. There's differing views on that now. And there's a new book out, which has got a lot of research behind it, called Range. You're an example of Range. You'd it works in hot dogs and food trucks and then go get some consulting experience and work for AXA and go diversify and go to South Africa and then do a couple of internet startups and go to Silicon Valley, then come back. So do you, if you've got someone from small business or someone wanting to start in small business, what would you say? What's the best grounding for them to, to be world-class, to be really good? Just do one thing or do you think there's real growth in that range, in that diversity? 
Look, I think it just, you know, a couple of things you've raised. So, you know, there's more unicorns in fairy tales and in plush toys than there are in business. Oh, boom. Can you say that again? Can you just say yeah, that yeah, again? There's, there's more unicorns in fairy tales and in plush toys than there are in business. The 10,000 hours that Gladwell came up with, yeah, it applied to, you know, Bill Gates and, you know, certainly the violinist. But Stephen Covey had a good saying about climbing the ladder, climbing the ladder of success. You're working, you get up the next run, work up the next run, which could be the 10,000 hours. But you better make sure the ladder's leaning against the right wall. So, you know, mastering the violin, if you don't enjoy it and it's a major sacrifice and you're not getting implicit pleasure and psychological satisfaction from doing that, you could literally be destroying your life. And there's no shortage of people that have traded everything off in their life to pursue some measure of success, whether it be in sport, whether it be in finance, whether it be in business. And, you know, as they say, like, you know, no one ever on their deathbed wishes they spent more time in their office unless when they were in their office they were flowing and they had a great balanced life and were able to contribute, you know, and help the people that they care most about. So, look, I, I, buy, I buy into the range thing. Uh, I would encourage anyone, anyone who's got an interest in uh, having their own business, you know, you're a customer now. You know, every business you interact with, be curious. How could you improve it? Uh, how could that be better? How can you make those suggestions? Whatever job you've got now, how can you really contribute to the team you're in to make things easier and more effective for your coworkers and for your boss? Help that business, that organisation be more successful. You know, most learning, I think, comes when you've got the learning mindset and you're in it's probably the first, you know, 100 to a couple of 100 hours that you learn a lot more according to the 80-20 principle, mm. then, uh, you know, our number 9,500. So two themes I just want to dig a bit deeper on you've just mentioned. First one is how do you define success? And the second one is talk to me about flow. So flow is a, uh, a concept, and it's often talked about these days in the circles of positive psychology, but a, a psychologist called uh, Chimineski, you know, I would have mispronounced it and I apologise to it him. It took me three it. years doing my master's. Chick send me high. I had a Hungarian okay. student I worked with who, I, I hope I'm doing it justice, but Chick send me high. I, I had to practice <laughs> well, and practice we'll and practice. Professor Chi. Right? Mikhail we'll Chick send me high, yeah, the, the big so, dog. So, so, what, so what Mikhail did, and this was, uh, you know, many of your listeners won't understand this, but there used to be things called pages and you put, you clip them on your belt and let's say you're a surgeon, a pager would send a signal out saying you've got to come to the hospital and you pick up this little pager and you read it and you go into the hospital. So his research methodology was to put these things on a couple of thousand people all around the world in different jobs. So people that were plumbers through to laborers, through to gardeners, through to brain surgeons. And what he did was that he would press a button, the global message would go out, they would vibrate and they had to sit down and write down in a journal what emotion they were feeling at that point in time and what it was they were actually doing. Now, the end result of all of that, the athletes will talk about being in the zone, time stands still. You know, my favourite quarterback, Tom Brady, says he can just see everything moving in slow motion around him. Particularly How good is he? He'll be playing when he's 57. As opposed to being playing for the Buccaneers. I know what's going on with him down there. But, but time stands still for the athletes. And so he described this as flow where whatever you're doing, you're so engaged in, that you lose sense of all time. You, you just, like, where did the time go? And there were a few preconditions for it that came up, and there were plumbers that experienced flow, people working on assembly lines, brain surgeons. So across all these different types of roles and occupations, there were certain people 
that at a certain point in time were in the zone, they were experiencing flow. And it came down to a couple of things. They were usually using a skill they were very good at. They were having to apply it to a situation where it was being stretched. They were being challenged. So they were just out of their comfort zone and they were getting feedback in terms of the progress they were making. So a really good example, if I think about my wife, Fiona, who loves reading, I think there's a book club meeting on tonight. So that's always a big night uh, in our place every month when book club's happening. But, you know, she'll start reading a, a novel and she'll get into it. And before you know it, three hours have gone. Now, again, when you think about when you're reading stories, reading novels, you're, the brain is often trying to guess what's going to happen. It's like watching a good you know, TV movie. Oh, what could happen here? What could happen there? So you're sort of predicting. You turn the page and you get feedback. Were you right? Were you wrong? So you know, reading for some people is a flow activity. You know, personally, for me, a flow activity is learning something new. And uh, Stephen Kirby, you say, look, you don't truly know something till you've had to teach it. And then, then the penny starts to drop. Ah, now I, now I sort of get it. Not getting it for the sake of putting it in an exam and getting a good score, but no, having to teach it and explain it to people. So flow is really important. We all experience it. It's not a, not a difficult thing to try and work out. Well, what are those instances where you have, therefore, and what skills were you using at that point in time? Might have been at work, might have been organising something outside of work, might have been interacting with your friends, but there'll be some signature strengths or skills that you're using. And I think one of, the, one of the keys to really being successful, which I'll define as being so engaged, spending the maximum amount of time you can in flow with people you like working with, working towards something you care about and making enough money to support whatever you think is an adequate lifestyle for you, that's success for me. Can you say that with a bit more passion? Like, can you dial it up a bit? But that's it. So uncovering your strengths and then getting better at those. And I don't know whether it's 10,000 hours, but the more you can use those, the better you get, the bigger the challenges you can take on. In a world now where, you know, one plus one equals three, if you get diverse people together pursuing a common goal, you know, you've always got something you can bring to the table that will make a big difference to that team and the achievement of that goal that you care about. Yeah, look, I want to continue on that topic. So when you talk about those three characteristics that those individuals have, it's really interesting hearing it can be a mechanic, it can be a plumber, it can be someone in consulting. Of course, athletes, it's the holy grail to get into flow. And you ask a lot of elite athletes, when you scored your highest innings or your, your best swim or you jumped the bar the most, tell me about it. A lot of them will say, I actually don't remember it. I was just so engrossed physically, psychologically, emotionally. But those three things you talk about, number one is a skill you're good at. So there's a mastery of craft. Number two is you're being challenged. I love that because you know, if you look at Tom Brady, why has he moved? Well, money, you could say if you're being a little bit sort of sceptical. But at 43 years of age or 44 years of age, he wants another challenge, a different team that's not going well. So he's being stretched, right? So you could argue he's putting himself into more of a flow state. He's been having a few blow-ups, so, so he, he may be challenging the theory. You can go a bit too much challenge. But number one, a skill you're good at. Number two, you're being challenged. And three, you're getting feedback about your progress. Talk to me about those three things specifically to your last six months as Director of Small Business Australia. Yeah, look, we, uh, you know, we've got a, a few businesses in our group and we've been doing a lot of work between Australia and China, uh, particularly with the Harvard alumni in China and the Harvard alumni here in Australia. And uh, so over the last few years, we've been travelling up there a lot. We've got a major venture in bringing the allied health industry. There are no physiotherapists or occupational therapists in China. Yet there's 120 million people that experience 
physical pain for longer than what they need to. So, so can, you just, re- can you just rewind? Can you say that again? There's no physiotherapist and no OTs, no occupational therapists Correct. in all of China. Well, there's a small number in a couple of the big cities that have been educated in Hong Kong or Australia or the UK, but it's not a it's not a profession that exists in China. And the government in China has determined they probably need one million of these sorts of people. Now, the way they normally get developed is you go to do your courses, but then you also work in clinic and get practical clinical experience. But how do you do that in China if there are no clinics? So, so there's a real cart and, and horse related challenge there. But but if I take a venture like that, so making great progress, I was in Shanghai and then in Suzhou in Jiangsu province in the middle of January. We came back, we've successfully been selected by the Nanjing government to actually set up this first Australian venture in this space in an accelerator there. Then, of course, COVID started hitting, travel was stopped. I had another business, I was like, golly, we've got these couple of businesses here that are in this business education, allied health education, and uh, we really can't move forward for them for the foreseeable future. Then I was chatting with a bunch of other people that I know well that have got businesses, high level of uncertainty, what are we going to be doing? The government's told us to close. And uh, pretty much over Easter, we created uh, at Small Business Australia, we said, well, look, we've got to get a plan together. We, we, people are going to need a survival plan. I personally thought this thing's going to be much worse than what people were initially thinking back in February. So we created a, a framework, almost McKinsey-esque, but in simple language to help people, a five-step survival plan. And then and that week, you know, launched and did four live webinars that week, recorded them, and then have been making them available to tens of thousands of small business owners at no cost. So... So in that case, it was taking, uh, you know, some of the skills, certainly a lot of the knowledge that I have and our team has got, turning into practical things, getting it developed very quickly and getting it out there. And then, of course, we, we saw the need for doing something around, you know, small businesses will largely not survive by their own unless big businesses help them. We need to, we need to work with some big businesses and get them involved to help get this material and other material out to small businesses. And so, you know, National Australia Bank, you know, the country's biggest small business bank, first call, decision made pretty much instantly. Uh, next call, Australia Post. Took a little bit longer, on board. Telstra, on board. And a bunch of other major corporates have now joined what we call Team Small Business Australia, where we now have a whole set of resources available at no cost to these small businesses to save money on their everyday expenses, access training, access education, learn how to better work with other businesses in their local community. Now that we've hit virus stable in Victoria, in the next couple of weeks, this will formally be happening. But in that case, you know, I've been in flow because it's like, what can we do to help? We're going to try and help a lot of people. Who's best place to help them? Who can I reach out to? Who can we communicate this with? How can we get them involved? And, and even to see what, you know, what NAB is doing with your business, Andrew, with Business Fit. This area of the, you know, the technical word is the resilience I'll just I'll just call it sort of the keeping yourself healthy. Our, our step number one in the five steps of survival plan was the realization that your health as the owner is going to be the most important thing. And I'm not talking about just avoiding COVID, but you know, in terms of your immune system, your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, because it's going to take an incredible amount. You'll never have been challenged like this in most cases Absolutely. ever in your business life than what you're facing as a small business owner today. Yeah. 
Hi, we hope you've been enjoying this podcast so far. Don't forget that we have plenty more podcasts and content just like this on NAB Business Fit. Go to www.nab.com.au forward slash business fit for more content to support your physical and psychological well-being and to help you take care of business. And now it's COVID, which is a black swan event, and it is the biggest thing we've seen in big business and small business the last 100 years. But let's go back to the last 18 months, Bill. There's been drought, there's been flood, there's been bushfires, there's been Royal Commission, which has impacted a lot of industries like financial Royal Commissions. There's been Royal Commissions in aged care. We're talking about a couple of other industries coming up. Consulting's getting a good look at at the moment as well. I think it's essential to be business fit all the time. And on that theme, as a small business owner, you're everything, right? Like you look back when you worked for a bank or an insurance company or a consulting firm, you had a defined role. What are you as a small business operator? Well, you're the, the owner, operator, you're the CFO, the CEO, you're the marketing consultant as well, you're the digital assistant, you go to office works and get staples, you greet people, you do the bills. Health and energy, I'm so aligned with you. If you haven't got your health as a small business owner, you are doing yourself a disservice. And I'm, I'm saying that to be a little bit confrontational, but in a supportive way, because I know a lot of people listening to this bill will go, yeah, yeah, I get you guys. But the, how do you get people across the butt you know, to, to put their health first, physical, psychological health, you know, physical, relationships, all that stuff? Yeah, look, what, what I've learned over the years uh, in terms of, you know, business coaching and particularly executive coaching. So I've coached a number of senior executives, you know, on the verge of heart attacks and had colleagues have heart attacks, you know, one executive, you know, billion dollars in profit he was responsible for, 10,000 staff. Uh, and what, and, and, and sometimes I just don't want to talk about it. No, no, let's have a meeting at the pub. Like, no, yeah, you're my coach, but let's go down and have a beer and da-da-da-da-da. And I think, Andrew, and you're the expert in this, right, but in terms of what I've learned through about behavioural change for adults, I, I like to say, look, Old dogs can learn new tricks, but it's one trick at a time. And, and that is the problem with sort of the, the, the general pre-existing, join the gym, buy the new gear. You're trying to change too many behaviours at once. And at the end of the day, our behaviours uh, are based on our habits. We want to be in the comfort zone. We want to use as least amount of energy as we can. That's what the brain's always thinking to itself. What's the fastest, easiest way? And I'll often use the metaphor of, you know, you see a paddock out there and there's long grass and there could be snakes out there, but you've got to cross it. And the first time across, you don't really, there's no, there's no worn path. You've got to, you know, when you might, oh, there's a broken glass there, I've got to be careful of the snake. And there's a lot of trepidation to get across. Then the next day, you've got to go again. And you go the next day and there are a couple of bits where you can still see where your foot held it down and there was something there. Now, in our lives, these neural pathways, connections between our brain cells are being worn over and over and over again. And the brain, like a broad brain connection, it wants to go the fastest, fastest way. Don't want to have to think about it. Now, what I've learned in working with, with uh, particularly people older than me is that when they learn how adults learn, uh, particularly around you know, what we call neuroplasticity and neuroscience, that the brain is capable of learning. The old dog can learn new tricks. And we do it one at a time, which might be, look, let's just, I just want you to get out of bed half an hour earlier every day for a month. Let's just start with that micro behaviour. Then you're going to be going, oh, what am I going to do? And, uh, you know, and then have a glass of water rather than going straight for the black coffee. Uh, and just layer those steps incrementally. It's amazing what change can be achieved. But trying to throw them straight into, you know, we're going to drop your 10 kilos and get on the Biggest Loser program, become an SAS soldier and, get the latest pair of Nikes, like every every January, you know, the world is littered 
with people going, I just can't do it. It's not for me. And you know what? No one can do it. Now, I often say that the fireworks crackle, hiss and pop on the 1st of January and that little voice starts, this year I'm going to get fit, lose weight, stop smoking, learn French, spend more time with the kids. And I've said to clients over the years, just get a, you're in Victoria, VB coaster. So in New South Wales, we'd have a, a Tui's New coaster. Queensland, get a Forex. Our friends in South Australia have a uh, Cooper's, WA Swan, have I missed anywhere? Uh, uh, Tasmania, get a Moobrew. So get a beer coaster and just write it on the back of the coaster bill. You know, this year I'm going to get fit, lose weight, stop smoking, learn French, spend more time with the kids and save yourself all that emotional energy, laminate it, pull it out. And then, you know, by middle of January, just throw it away because the (laughs) fundamental way of trying to set goals to impress everyone else doesn't work. So we're definitely aligned on that. So can I ask you as a young dog, and I choose my words cautiously, what new tricks have you taught this young dog recently? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm thinking about you know, myself more recently around I've been learning a lot about you know, different things to deal with the immune system. So I've been having a few immune system challenges and I've been thinking, well, what is it? And I, I actually just, if I, rather than just uh, taking this particular thing for my cholesterol, I might actually read in more detail about this. So I had all my biomarkers checked, they're all looking good. And I go, let me, let me have a look at this. And I'm, I'm reading all the side effects going, Side effect on this thing actually includes that. Now, I might only be in X percent. Now, I, uh, you know, because I love science and, uh, you know, like knowing what's going on. I had my full DNA, my full genetic makeup uh, mapped last year in the US and discovered that there are a couple of variations in a couple of my genes that I definitely need the ER departments to know about if I end up in hospital. So I've been learning a lot more about myself and then looking at that medication, that statin, and you know what? Just tweaking a little bit of the diet and actually reducing the dose of that is going to, you know, not give me the issues I've been having with inflammation, as an example. Mm. And have you been looking at? So you got genetics. So that's the the Lang generation going back to Germany, and then epigenetics is when and how you open it up. And that's a fascinating. They look at studies on twins, two identical twins who are separated. So same. DNA separated, live very different lifestyles. The healthy twin, you look at them 20 years later, you, the unhealthy twin who has smoked and drunk and in excess and had too much stress and not enough exercise, amazing when you look at those studies. So did you go down that pathway as well? Have you started looking at the epigenetics? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of, you know, like, you know your genes have to be expressed. You can have them there quite latently, but the environment that you're in, so the level of stress you might be experiencing, the level of cortisol in terms of in the case of those twin studies that they ended up in adopted homes, you know, how stable were the adopted homes of one versus the other, the diet, you know, you know, everything impacts everything, Andrew. And I think everyone, particularly during the pandemic, is now much more aware of even just personal hygiene. And we see you know, a great reduction in the number of people getting pneumonia uh, and dying of pneumonia, you know, here in Australia as an example. But, uh, but I think, uh, again, it's one of the things coming out of the pandemic is much more of an interest and focus on health. People are spending more time at home. Here in Melbourne, we haven't been able to see a lot of our family members now for a number of months. It's just staying open. So I think there's, I think we're going to see a bit of a realignment of, of people's uh, values and priorities. And, uh, you know, as they say, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. But the good news is everyone's health can be improved one step at a time rather than the, um, you know, the January mirage. You are not the first person on this podcast series who has said those two things about your health, but also going back to some of the old school, old world values, rituals, connection, stuff we do with our families. So have you studied psychology or have you just got a real interest 
in, in oh, look, learning it's, it's about the brain? I've, uh, I've always read about. So I had you know, some friends when I was at Harvard that made me aware of that stuff. You'd walk to Harvard Square, just fantastic bookshops. You know, you can, the, the Harvard sort of model of education is you don't have to need the subject. You can go and sit in on the classes. So when you've got the guys and gals that have written the books and you can go and sit there at the back of the lecture theatre and listen to them. So I'm a, uh, you know, I'm an armchair neuroscientist. I haven't written any, well, I've written a little bit about it, but I'm a great consumer of fact-based as opposed to the uh, digital notions, lotions and potions <laughs> seem to be out there at the end of a landing page for nothing followed by a coaching program. Don't get me started. Let's stay on track. Now, if I pick up some of the psychological constructs you've spoken about, then with your permission, I want to change gears. So those psychological constructs is growth mindset, is flow. You've spoken about constant learning or learning agility. You've spoken about neuroscience and flow as well. So a lot of brain science. I I imagine you've had to use every bit of knowledge you've got from you know, your interest in the brain and the body and all your consulting experience and real life experience and, and, and a few hardships as well to help you deal with some of the conversations you've had over the past couple of months. So if you're okay to discuss that on you know, just some of the real conversations you're having with business owners and how much some people are struggling. Yeah, look, you know, the worst ones have been where I've had a, in a couple of cases, widows call me up because their husband business owners have taken their own lives. So that they've been quite distressing, and in many cases, it's helping the widows start to sort through, you know, the financial situation that they're grappling with, and finding good financial counsellors and accountants that can help them navigate some of those things. And then some of that then turns into actually talking with life insurance companies and others around what proactive things those companies can be doing to prevent this happening, as well as then lobbying the federal government to do away with anyone being made legally bankrupt as a result of their business having to close permanently because of the response to COVID. We've still got some way to go with that, but we, you know, the government is listening. I've been in, in direct conversation with a few cabinet ministers, but we need, we know, that's part of the health epidemic that we have. We have a mental health epidemic alongside a viral pandemic going on in the small business sector. So that's a that's at one end of the spectrum. There are others where the reality is that They'd got themselves involved in small business. They had a dream, might have been a picture of a unicorn, but the reality of running and operating that business has been a strain. It's been a great weight uh, on their own shoulders and that of their family. And actually, this is the opportunity to, to make a major change and to you know close down and to reassess their situation and put themselves in a situation uh, that's going to work better for them. So, you know, sometimes closing the business use the opportunity now to say, well, look, I've worked hard at this thing, but going forward, you know, we hadn't invested heavily, let's say, in digital. I'm not that confident with it. I'm not too sure we can keep up with the rate of change in things. There are so many opportunities in other fields. You know, anyone who's run a small business is capable of working in a number of fields. Those generalist skills that responsibility, that accountability, the ultimate self-starter. There's no shortage of employers looking for people with judgment, with that are mature and that are self-starters. So I, I would say to anyone listening, uh, you know, today to what we're talking about, and if you're feeling like that, particularly, you know, in a situation where you've got, you know, loans with banks, you know, again, I take my hat off to what NAB has been doing, uh, you know, Ross, uh, and honor in the small business area, hiring extra small business bankers, calling up the customers to see how they're going, where they're at, 
starting to talk about how things can be restructured. But in some cases, you know, closing down, you know, will be the sensible thing for for you to do. Uh, you know, there are some others that uh, will be able to keep going, but maybe the original vision that they had is no longer relevant, uh, that they do need to adjust to where is the demand now and how does that demand stack up with my ability and my business to be able to deliver the product or service uh, in those areas. Uh, and, then, and then for a number that we're talking to, Andrew, uh, exporting. You know, so much is now being delivered via things like Zoom that you and I are talking on today. Physiotherapy is getting delivered via things like Zoom. So now the world is potentially your oyster and the Australian government's making, you know, good uh, incentives available to help people have a go at exporting. So you, you really do need to be thinking global. There are customers out there that think about Australia as a safe place, a clean place, an innovative place, a modern place, has good institutions. It's a great brand name, Australia. Don't just think about customers in your own backyard. You might find the growth opportunity for you is is offshore. Mm. I I think it's refreshing hearing you talk about stopping assessing where your small business is because a lot of you know, small business coaches and so-called experts will say keep pushing through. And if you look at the definition of mental toughness, there's actually two sides of it. Most people think mental toughness is like William Wallace in Braveheart. They won't take our freedom and you charge forward. And the other definition of mental toughness is actually knowing when to pull up stumps, to use a cricket term, or when to actually go, hey, I've put a lot of time and effort into this, yes. But if I keep going, I'm, I'm flogging a proverbial dead horse. And then if you adapt, we're not allowed to use the word pivot on this program. Every time we use the word pivot, we donate $10 to a charity now. But, you know, when you adapt and then go and use the skills, that range to apply to another area. So it's refreshing hearing you say that. But so many people, Bill, when you run your own business, it's in, it's in your DNA. You know, I am the business owner and this is linked to my success. And everyone says, so how's your business going, Bill? How do you coach someone around that if their business is struggling to actually try and deleverage that and then move to something else? What would that conversation look like? I think it starts, and in my experience, it's, it's, it's a more prevalent issue amongst blokes than necessarily female business owners who, in my experience, do talk quite openly, usually with other female business owners and their female friends and, and, and sort of share the load and the burden of what they're dealing with, whereas unfortunately, a, you know, a number of male business owners over the years and ask how things are going, well, not too bad, and if they're not going bad, if not going well, we'll blame the council or blame the government or or whatever, but but there's, you know, I even know this with career coaching that I do with some executives, a lot of men that have acquaintances, say their fellow parents or fathers at their kids' school or whatever, and they're watching the rugby on the weekend and sort of having a bit of a chat with each other, they don't have any really deep understanding of what that person does in their job or what their business really is about. They have a certain set of associations. But what I've found over the years, it's, it's, it's really helping the person get back to what's most important to them, you know, in their life. And again, the Covey Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I recommend everyone read it. I give the book away all the time. But really getting in touch with a, you know, developing a personal mission statement for you as an individual and understanding these seven habits and, and that, they, that you are not, you're not your genes. You're not the result of you being grown up. You know, habit number one is about being proactive, you know, and beginning with the end in mind. But creating that sort of vision and mission for yourself about your life of which then the business is potentially a vehicle that uh, is used to ideally use your best skills to do great work that you're proud of and generate enough income 
to support you in achieving the you know the other goals that you have in the other important roles you have as a father or mother or brother or sister, a business owner, you know, coach of the local cricket team, you know, whatever those things might be. So most people don't have a framework. And, and I think there's a lot of value in having a logical, sensible framework and then applying it. I really like that because your role identity is your role identity. And you, you often have that question when you meet someone, oh, hey, Bill, Andrew, so Bill, what do you do? Well, I'm a father and I'm a psychology neuroplasticity enthusiast and I love hot dogs and I love Bob Dylan and we're, we're this wonderful, it's like a pakari rug in all the different colours and speckles, but it's, 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 it is dangerous. It happens to a lot of small business owners. It just becomes an obsession, work, 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 and you said before it's the sum of the parts. So it's having that balance, isn't it? But when you are under the pump where a lot of small business owners are right now, how do you get people just to slow down a bit, to, to step back? Or in coaching psychology, we say get off the dance floor and up onto the balcony because you can be like wrestling, wrestling. It's like after a three-day break and then you go, oh, but how do you get people to do that, to, to free up some space and slow down? Yeah, look, in my experience with the coaching that I've done, it never happens in their office. So, so you have to change the environment and get them out of where they're the king or the queen, where there's so much stuff going on around them. You've got to get rid of their mobile phone. So, again, we look at the neuroscience. You can feel it in your pocket. And, and, you know, these ways with the way that all the apps are designed, you get a big squirt of dopamine by going to check it. And, and you'll find yourself, if you can see it, I can see mine sort of over here. I'm just sort of picking it up. I, but I did quite deliberately turn it off before we started. But, but there's all of that stuff toying their attention, distracting them, pulling them away from me. So you've got to sort of get rid of the phone, get them out of the space that they're in. You know, we've done it a few times, but really getting, uh, you know, getting out in nature, getting out of the city, that's always proved to be very, very useful. Going for a bit of a walk, you know, walk, having a bit of a walking meeting, walking conversation. I, I know we, we developed a framework a few years ago called Engagineering, the art and science of engaging yourself and others. And it used elements of the, uh, the framework around full engagement that you'd be aware of. Uh, but we, we overlaid it with a lot of neuroscience. But we, we licensed and created a whole bunch of little videos. We took the top team from the Bank of New Zealand off-site for a couple of days into the beautiful uh, New Zealand wilderness. And rather than having someone, you know, or I sort of say show and throw, stand up the front and show the slides and throw up all over them, we, we basically, uh, let's watch this little bit of a video here of the US Navy SEALs and their mental toughness programs. Let's watch the chief medical officer in the UK in his BBC series on the brain. What did you learn from it? So they were learning together and creating a framework that they then could apply to each other. You know, they learned about what we call rapid pathway moulding. So how do you really build a skill really fast? We call it a VIP framework, which is our visualisation of important interactions. So that's sitting down and having that conversation with an employee, with a daughter, with a partner, around you know, the serious stuff, the high-stakes stuff. And then the final thing we call the DARE, which was the daily activity record and evaluator. So we they buddy up with a learning partner, what is the skill that each of them have decided they're going to get better and they'd be checking in with each other day in, day out to keep each other honest. But uh, getting off-site, getting rid of the phones and, uh, you know, learning, coming up with a framework. We do a lot of work with helping people with feedback training, uh, Andrew. A lot of people, everyone knows that effective feedback is incredibly valuable for everybody involved, yet most people avoid giving it. They want to avoid it. There's very good reasons based on how our amygdala works and how we want to 
maintain harmony and stay connected. You know, you'll go into, you know, uh, some people will go into a, a department store to buy a dress and the dress will look awful on the uh, the woman that's trying it, it on. It looks amazing. The will lie. Even her friend will lie. Oh, I think that looks really good. You know, like. <laughs> Is that like the jeans I bought when I was in uh, New York a couple of years ago at Abercrombie and & Fitch and I thought I was a lot cooler than I actually am and I bought these jeans. I had this young hip guy who had abs and dreadlocks and everything else and dancing around. I, yeah, man, those jeans look awesome. And I, I, I got home and wore them to a barbecue and a couple of my mates said, what the? Like, and they laughed at me. Uh, is that what happened there? That, 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 that young guy and some people at Abercrombie and Fitch sort of said, hey, guy, middle-aged man, get out of those jeans. Embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're basically, uh, yeah, you bought the vibe and ended up with the product and the money changing hands. The but, vibe but what, entertained what, what, my friends at a barbecue, but did not not much else. With with, with the feedback skills, once people learn that, it's, that there's very natural reasons for why people avoid giving performance feedback, it's like okay, let, yeah, then they understand. Well, what are all the all the costs associated for not doing it with everybody involved? The person that would benefit from getting it, the other team members that want to see it happen, you as their manager, the organisation, all the costs. What are all the benefits of doing it sooner and doing it well than deferring it? And then that you can learn how to do it. Okay, now it's okay that I my amygdala is more sensitive. She's a lot of costs that me not doing it is incurring for everybody involved. There's a lot of benefits we're all going to get, and I can learn how to do it. It's learnable. Everything changes. So it's very important for people to have their beliefs about themselves changed if they've got a fixed mindset. I am who I am. I am my genes. I am the way I brought up. My personality is like this. If that's what they believe, until that belief is changed, that's what that's what they're going to believe. Do you challenge a lot of small business owners? I'm just trying to get in the shoes of someone who comes to you for coaching for a course for some online content who might think, I just want a pathway to market more or go digital. And then you've got this crazy passionate guy out the front talking about your purpose and your value set and looking after your physical health and your psychological health and your role identity outside of just being a small business owner. Does that challenge people to start with? Look, look sometimes, but I, you know, more often than not, like you think about when you go and see a GP, you've got a source of pain, trying to sell the full health check and MRI scans and things, particularly if they've got to put their own hands in their own pocket, might be a bit too hard. But if you've got a source of pain, you want to relieve the pain. Now, we have a group of coaches and a bunch of services in terms of our online advice and business coaching where they need help with sorting out this digital stuff. Well, they need help with, you know, there's billions of dollars of government grants that most small business owners never apply for, and they're out there. And those that tap into them take advantage of them and get the benefit. So sometimes it's like, let's just start with where the pain is and get that sort of fixed up, and the trust gets established. You've helped me solve a problem that I have at the moment. Now we can start to look at something you know, on a more meta level or a bigger level. But yeah, look, in some cases it's challenging. And I, you know, I do it with my friends that find themselves retrenched. Like I have to, you know, I have to give them the tough love. If no one's not if someone's not going to say it to them, you know, I've had a marketing manager from a very senior company, you know, lose their job, was making a few hundred thousand dollars a year and in charge of all these people. But of course, most most uh, of his mates thought that as this marketing director, he just went to the Grand Prix and went to fashion shows and that's what marketing was. No, no idea about the re- you know, all the things that are involved. So in terms of his ability to generate even leads, because most jobs at his level aren't, aren't given to recruiters to fill, most people have no idea what he did. So, But he'd never even developed his own brochure. You know, can you look at my resume? I say, no, I'm not interested in your resume. I want to see your brochure. Right? You know, I don't want to see your email address at Gmail. 
I want to see, uh, you know, Lang Marketing Services and a website and line it up with your LinkedIn profile. You're not on gardening leave. You know, during gardening leave, the best opportunity you might ever, ever have might go straight through someone you know who had no idea that you were potentially available and open to explore it. So, uh, you know, we're in a rapid global world. And so sometimes, you know, you know and some of them don't like it. And I say, well, that's, that's fine. Now, small business owners, it's such a breadth, right, from people who are in entertainment, people who are in food, there's travel, there's consulting, there's building and construction, the list goes on and on and on and on. So we've got a whole, whole, whole range of people listening. If I can ask you a question getting a bit more specific to running a small business, what are the things that you would say every small business needs specific to digital? Is it a website? Is it some social media? What, what is yeah, it? Well, you definitely need your own website. Now, a lot of people have taken advantage of free pages on Google and Facebook and Instagram, and that's good. But think about them as like media channels. They're owned by someone else. You know, a couple of years ago, you would do a Google search on your phone and there would be some so-called free results come up. And that's the ones we always want to, want to click on. But you do a Google search on almost anything now that's got a commercial product associated with it. You've even got the companies themselves paying Google for an ad about their company to come up. Mm. So, so, so you don't want to be totally reliant upon people who make money out of advertising. You do need your own website, or as um, a business coach I know described, you've got to, you know, you've got to own your own race course. So you've got to have your own website. You've got to be collecting your own email addresses and be able to communicate directly with those customers because, you know, these big internet companies change their rules all the time and you could find that the rule gets changed and you're out. We had a business recently that told us that Facebook had changed their rules and they, their advertising account was stopped. And it's like revenue's just dried up as a result of a change in the rules on their side. So definitely your own website is important. The CRM system, you know, there's great ones available for free from, you know, global leaders like HubSpot. So many businesses have been caught out, you know, six months ago. They were retail, you know, hospitality. You know, my barista at Brunetti in Melbourne knows me, knows I like my long macchiato. You know, I'm normally in there about 5.45 in the morning reading printed newspapers that they have. But, you know, they couldn't send me an email. They had no digital infrastructure. Their loyalty card was an old bit of paper, whereas the coffee shop down the road uses Skip, an app. It's communicating with their customers, knows who they are, kept them informed. So the CRM stands for Customer Relationship Management, absolutely essential. You know, the other thing is, is there's a range of areas now where, you know, either for free or a small amount of money, you can make sure you're complying with the Fair Work Act. You can be getting, you know, really simple financial data to keep your bank informed. So, that, so there's, we think about any type of business, we talk about the big five. What are the big five processes, right? The first one is marketing, and marketing means the things you need to do to get an inquiry. Sales is everything you have to do then to convert the inquiry into some dollars, getting, getting someone buying something. The third area then we call fulfillment or delivery. Someone's bought and paid. If it's a physical thing, you've got to physically deliver it. If it's a service, you've got to deliver it in however you might deliver it, which might be online, might be face-to-face or whatever, but you've got to get that right. Then the fourth area is relationship management. Now you've got a customer, they've had an experience, hopefully their expectations were realistically set by you and you exceeded them. So there is a chance they might like you on Facebook, they might be open to read your next email, but that is the most important asset you have. Because in fact, there's no ever, you know, people say I'm self-employed. You're not self-employed. You're employed by your customers and particularly the customers that want to come back and keep doing business with you. So relationship management's the fourth. 
And then operations is a foundational thing, finance, IT, office space, digital infrastructure, HR-related services, tax advice and accounting. They're sort of foundational, but upon them maketh no business. It really is about customers. So for that, summarising the digital presence, so number one, a website with a client list, and two, the very basic, a CRM, a customer relationship manager. Absolutely. So give me a ballpark figure, someone listening to this who doesn't have a website or maybe five years ago spent $15,000 to get a tailored website and every time they did that, it wasn't on WordPress, so they had to go to the provider. It cost them $1,000 to update a page. What would they be looking at now to do a website for a business? Yeah, look, and I think I would say to a lot of people that have got some of those websites where, you know, someone's kid built it for you or some IT guy who now he's gone hiking and you can't get him and every time you ring him up, he needs 100 bucks an hour and uses all this gobbledygook jargon that you can't understand. You know, there are some really good platforms around that depending on what you need the website to do, from anywhere from 900 to about $3,000, you can get a fantastic website built, hosted and maintained for you. I know of one service provider, then for like $60 a month, you have a telephone call with them. They talk you through the statistics in plain English about what's going on with the site, and you can ring them up whenever you've got any questions. These guys have got, I think it's something they told me, 4,000 Australian small businesses are on their particular website platform, 98% retention rate, 98 out of 98%, wow. Because they've got an account manager. You've got someone to ring up. It's not a techo or not someone who's inexperienced or not some evangelist for social media and you've got to be on Instagram and all of this sort of rubbish, right? That's what they do. They serve small businesses. So, so then you're up for like sort of 60 bucks or so a month. As I said, the CRM system, you get the basic one for free. We're, we're uh, using HubSpot. That, you might pay 50 bucks a month or something. Yeah, the HubSpot free freemium version is good. There's, there's a whole load of different sites you can have as well. But I like that terminology of owning the race course. So you've got your website, you get that up. It's a hell of a lot cheaper than it used to be. And you, you mentioned the distribution list. So you're going to capture people's names. How often, what's the frequency of uh, an e-newsletter? Do you advise people to go monthly, quarterly? Look, I think a lot depends, Andrew. You, you made the point before. People talk about small business and often people in their head, they go, oh, the cafe down the road or whatever. But We've got everyone from accounting firms of small businesses to engineering firms to people that run birthday parties for children in backyards. There's a lot of diversity in terms of what's out there. Uh, we, we believe it's very important to understand, you know, with some depth, the customer buying process, the sort of steps they go through, what triggers their need for your product or service. You know, the kid's got a 50-year birthday coming up, for example, what information search they might do. So depending on the product or service that you sell, and how often people need it or in the market for it, that's thinking about what you might put out there and on what sort of a frequency. Um, and look, some people are sending stuff out every day because it's very easy to do it digitally and then people just unsubscribe from time to time. You know, some people will go, you know, there's, there's some news that's relevant for that customer uh, and we need to let those customers know. For example, I'll give you a good example. The federal government at the last budget has made $1.2 billion available for small businesses to hire up to 100,000 people in what are called apprenticeships and traineeships. Now, people hear apprentice and they go, oh, yeah, blue-collar mechanics, mm. sparky, four years, that's not me. But a trainee is someone that you might have for 12 months that could be doing any type of job in any type of business. And did you know that you could get $28,000 towards their first-year salary of, say, 56000 enrolling them in that traineeship? 
Now, that opportunity, people are applying for it now and grabbing it. Most of our 2 million small businesses don't even know that it exists. If I was an accountant of a small business owner, I'd be letting them know about that now. That would be like the budget has come out and here are the two things that might be relevant for you. You know, at Small Business Australia, we're going to let all of our members know because there's going to be a lot of school leavers leaving school at the end of the year that aren't going to get a job. There's going to be kids leaving university this year. They're not going to get a job. I'm sorry. The, the true number of people unemployed in Australia today is about 1.5 million. When Job Seeker goes and all of this sort of stuff, we're going to have a lot of people where there's not going to be enough jobs. So if you've got a, a cousin who's got a small business, maybe your son could go and work in that small business and have you know half of the salary paid for while they do a course on digital business, for example. Now, in that scenario, we would let people know about that that are members of Small Business Australia when the opportunity arises. It might be reinforced in the monthly newsletter, but this is an opportunity. It lasts forever. We're going to let you know about it because it's relevant to you. Mm. So looking forward, if we get a crystal ball, looking at two things, what's your vision? What's your hope for small business in Australia in 12 months' time? Look, I think that for those that have had to close permanently, that in the very short term, they have what we call a COVID business closure. They're not made bankrupt and they're able to get going again because small business people are made, they're not born. And the innovation, not necessarily the unicorns and the startups and the scale-ups and all of that jargon, the reality is 5 million Australians depended upon their financial livelihoods based on working or owning a small business at Christmas time. And those small business owners, yeah, the economic backbone, yeah, we hear that, but they're the hearts and souls of their local communities. They're sponsoring a local sporting club. They're donating the prizes for the school raffle, et cetera. So we want the people that are going to need to close to, to be able to close permanently, not have any legal implications of being bankrupt and be able to get going again in something else. So that's very short term. I would like to think that everyone is quite digitised, uh, so they're running things more efficiently. Those that want to grow, so beyond generating a positive cash flow that meets the needs that they and their families have got, those that want to grow are really looking outside of their neighbourhood, outside of Australia, looking at these incredible countries and markets that are pretty much in our own time zone that look favourably upon us and learning about and embarking on reducing their risks of just being reliant upon a bunch of local customers in a local area. And crystal ball for you? Oh, look, out! We, you know, we've got sort of three key businesses that we're involved with. Uh, the Institute of Advanced Business Studies, yeah, Small Business Australia. You know, we're doing a lot of work in what we call digital business cadetship, so helping unemployed people learn about digital business and placing them into businesses to help the businesses get digitised so they can sort of mentor each other, get a qualification and build up skills that then can be made cost-effectively available. Our International Rehabilitation Institute, you know, want to get to China as soon as we can and start implementing that, you know, that opportunity that's up there. And, and I think other than that, like it's, we want people to, to want to work in a small business, to want to own their small business, to be proud of being in small business. That, you know, small business people, like they're the hearts and souls, Andrew, of our local communities. They need all the support we can give them and everyone should aspire to be one. They certainly are. Look, a small business owner as well, it's been challenging for all of us through COVID, but we grow the most, we learn the most from the most difficult times. And that's, again, a common theme throughout this whole series. What have you found most challenging when you look back, and not specifically in COVID, but are there a couple of events? So the, the hot dog first night, you know, that's a little hiccup. You change the other side of the road. Good adaptability, good you know, learning to to roll and change. 
But is there an example, something that's happened to you work-wise or personally that that was really tough that, that looking back now you learned a lot from? Look, raising capital in a, in a high-growth startup was, was challenging, uh, particularly when you've got people that have come on board to pursue the dream. They've left corporate jobs where they were, you know, had a stable career path and were earning pretty good money to take a risk and join an entrepreneurial dream. Uh, our free online business uh, was almost going to be IPO'd or floated on the Australian Stock Exchange. We we're raising about $50 million. The company was valued at $350 million. And the NASDAQ stock market, just before we put the prospectus out, so we spent all the money with EY, Mallison's a law firm, Merrill Lynch were our underwriter from New York, and we're just ready to put it out. And the stock market went from an index of, I think it was 6,000 to 1,500. So what happened over the next 12 months was that not only could we not do that, I mean, we had to sort of see whether we could keep that business going. Meanwhile, we were on the verge of raising capital to set up the American-based uh, company. And it then took us another 10 months of traveling around the world, meeting with Bill Gates, meeting with the guys at AOL, getting very, very close until fortunately, you know, 10 months later, you know, we bought on board a $100 million investment for 25% of the, of the new company after everything had fallen over. Now, the most challenging thing about all of that was the, the stress and pressure of letting down the team members. That was, you know, it's, it's never good having to downsize. People have, they've come on board, they're, they're helping pursue the vision, they, they have given up something very tangible. I'm, I am very pleased to say, because we, we keep in touch and we've almost, I think we're about to have our sort of 20 year, we've just had our 20 year reunion from the initial startup of the thing. But uh, in keeping in touch with them and watching some of the wonderful things they've done with their lives and their careers, I, I don't think there's many, if any, that look back on that risk-taking experience without some fondness around what it was like and what they learned and, and, uh, and what we did. And you don't often have that, or you definitely don't have that in the thick of it, when you've got that 10 months meeting with all the techno startup, big names and everything. I'm sure you had some moments where you're going, oh, this is just punishing. Did you ever ever wake up one day or get to the end of the day and just think I've had enough it's too much and I, I want to yeah, throw it very close a few times because I you know I think the adrenaline was high you know I was living on you know pretty much living on caffeine you know flying you know the, the body clock was out of whack you know we, we had prospective investors in Italy and Saudi Arabia you know, I spent a lot of time in London so you just you know looking back look back looking back on it now I'm Glad I was in my mid-30s uh, as, as opposed to attempting to do it now. And for people, again, going through this, I'm sure through COVID, they'll look back a, a big period of growth. But have you ever had to shut down a business? Oh, is yep, that absolutely. It? You have? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We've had uh, you know, a startup that we worked on in the education sector in the US uh, with Intel as our major partner, getting ready to implement it, and the 2008 global financial crisis hit. The American education system is funded by state taxes and when and states have to break even. So we were all geared up to go to work in Colorado and uh, they then cut their budget in the Colorado State Education Department and most of the IT people and all the IT budget went. And so we had a group of people down here that had developed the application and uh, you know, we had to wind it up, we had to put it into it into administration and wind it up. How did you feel about that at the time emotionally? And how did you process oh, that? Very, look, it's, it's, you don't like letting anybody down. Uh, so it was you know, one of any number of opportunities where you think you're so close, you're so committed to it, you're such a believer in it. And 
either you've been ineffective at persuading others they can't see it or they don't get it or they don't want to get it or you know COVID comes along global financial crisis comes along things that are outside of your control what can I do something about and that's where you know the healthier you are on all those dimensions of you know physical mental and emotional health and I think you know also the you know the Americans would call it spiritual health but just you know alignment with what you're about as a, as a human being in terms of being on the planet and you know looking after the people you care about making a positive difference you know, if, if you've got those things aligned and you have to fail and close the business down for whatever reason so be it I'm going to ask you a slightly provocative question. What's the difference between being self-employed and a startup? Yeah, look, I think um, often people talk about being self-employed, but I, I, really, I would say, look, you're really you're employed by your customers, right? But in, in many cases, the self-employed they've got an SEV that they're driving, and the customers determining the next destination. But if you've got a business, so beyond that, rather than a startup, I'd say a startup is like from scratch. You see a gap in the market. You're developing something new that you don't think exists in the market or a new way of marketing and selling it. More often than not, at some point in time, you can't do it yourself. You've got to bring other people in. We had a great definition of entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School. And the way they thought about it, because it's against a buzzword like, you know, startups gets thrown around. They say, look, they say that, you know, an entrepreneur is someone who relentlessly pursues an opportunity without the available resources. Oh, can you say that again? An entrepreneur is someone that relentlessly pursues an opportunity without available resources, as opposed to a manager, executive or administrator who has resources and then has to determine to allocate resources among opportunities. You know, has to get, got to put the business case up and see whether you can persuade the people inside the big corporation to fund it, as opposed to the entrepreneur actually doesn't have all the resources, right? but sees the opportunity and relentlessly pursues that opportunity. Who do I need to get involved? How, how can I get them involved? What do I need to learn? Where can I get the first customer from? All of those sorts of things. So when I think of a startup that has a high growth potential, that's, that's an entrepreneur driving a startup like that. When I think about uh, being self-employed, and it's wonderful being self-employed, but the terminology is probably a bit more, now you're employed by the customers. It may not be a business, it's a business probably if you can take four weeks off and some income will come in, you've probably got a couple of employees or suppliers and subcontractors, but it doesn't need you there, you know, putting in the productive effort to serve the customer. Mm. So self-employment vehicles, small businesses, got a couple of million of them. There are great lives available for small business people. And then a few startups where entrepreneurs are relentlessly pursuing the opportunity. Yeah, it's a good delineation. Now, when I look back at your timeline and everything we've spoken about today, you've had success in business, small and, and large. You've done consulting. You've travelled the world. You married the girl of your dream. You've studied, you've learned, you're continually adapting. What keeps you going? Like, I, 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 you sound and you look and it feels as passionate as you were way back at 37 when you had the epiphany, this is what I'm going to do. What, what fuels you to keep going at the intensity? Because it's been tough for you. Yeah, look, look, this is probably a good a good spot to wrap up given I've got a meeting about to start in a couple of minutes. And it's with a business owner that has a has had a great business, but has been almost put out of business now, not allowed to reopen, has a business with is involved with more than a thousand shopping centers around the world. 
I, I'm looking forward to chatting with him, getting an understanding a bit more about the situation and then being of some help in some way. If there are some resources that I can help that person access and I've made that difference, that, you know, that, I, that I'll go home, I'll get a beer out, a VB, the green can here in Victoria, and, uh, and I'll drink it and go, that's very satisfying. You know, I get the greatest buzz out of Andrew on helping people believe in themselves and change their mindset and their skill set to be better equipped to be financially secure for themselves and their families. And whether that's a small business owner, whether it's an entrepreneur, whether it's an executive, that's what puts the fire in my belly. Yeah, love it. So for those people who want to connect with you, who want to find out more about what you do and your services, I'm assuming smallbusiness.org might be one place where to go. Where else can people find you and connect with you? Yeah, so look, smallbusinessaustralia.org is where we provide the range of resources and things, including a free membership to small business people. My personal website with respect to some of the coaching that I do personally, uh, people will find me at bill-lang.com bill-lang.com. Yeah. Done. From Dr. Dog with a very vegetarian option as well to <laughs> consulting, to running small businesses, to coaching, you do so much, you give so much. It's been lovely to share some time with you. First of all, to find out a little bit about you, more about you as a person. And Anna Marankovic specifically said, ask Bill about Bill because you do so much for everyone else. So it was lovely to hear about some of your story. It's lovely to see your passion. I'm going to give you the final words. For all those people listening, running a small business, what's your final words to them? Oh, look, I, I, well, definitely, you know, if, if you are really struggling at the moment, you must talk to your key suppliers and financiers. Now, come over to our smallbusinessaustralia.org, join up for free. We've got videos in there to coach you on how to do that and, and just drop me an email. So for, for that group of people, don't hesitate. Uh, reach out and, uh, and we'll do everything we can to help you. And I know those big companies want to do the same thing as well. So that's, uh, that's at that level. And I think for like everyone else that's beyond survival, there are a lot of opportunities out there now. Australia has never been, and the brand Australia, never better positioned globally than where we find ourselves at the moment with respect to where we've got to with the pandemic. Now we're going to have negative economic impact. You know, at the moment we're forecast to you know, be in five years' time, maybe back to the size of the economy that it was last year. So that's, that's a reality check. But much better place than most of the rest of the world. And a lot of people want to learn from us. They want to deal with us. We're known as being friendly, fair dinkum, uh, easy to deal with. So, you know, think big and go for it. The coolest hound around, the hottest dog in town. Uh, Bill Lang, thank you for today, for sharing your story, for sharing some wonderful information for small business owners. Uh, the only thing in between you and talking, coaching to a shopping centre owner and his 1,000 shopping centres is us. So I'm going to wrap you up. You go and do what you do best and thank you very much. And for those people as well who are wanting to contact Bill, check the show notes and we'll have a link of all of your websites there as well. So truly thank you for joining us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Andrew. See you later. Hey, it's Andrew again, and we hope you enjoyed that interview. And just a quick note to remember to please go to nab.com.au slash businessfit. We hope you really liked this episode and received lots of value, and we would love it if you can go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast and click on the subscribe button. 
We'd also really appreciate it if you share it with friends or colleagues you think might also benefit from these messages. And we'd really appreciate if you can rate and review it. We love seeing your messages and love seeing your ratings. Okay, that's it for this time. We look forward to connecting with you again on the next episode of NAB Business Fit.